Let's take our Bibles this morning and return to our study of Revelation chapter 19. As I was standing singing that song, I was thinking about this last week and then thinking about that this morning. And I think I've said this before, when I come up to preach, I pray that the Spirit would work. And it may seem a bit odd that I say that to myself as I'm praying or as I'm coming up here, but but I I want us to think about that just for a moment. I was thinking about that even this week and, and yet this morning. It's always a profound thing to me to think through the reality of the Spirit of God working. We, we are here this morning, we, we woke up, we, uh, the alarm went off, or maybe the alarm didn't go off, and we just woke up, and we got dressed, and it's Sunday, it's that day of the week that we uh, have, some, for some reason and some time, gotten to a habitual way in which we, we go to the church. We, we come to the church, and we, we uh, are with the people of God, and, and we think sometimes that it's just the next day. It's the day in which we worship, but, but there's really no sense in which it's different in some ways in our, in our week. We, we don't even really think of the Spirit of God, that, that we're here, that every moment of our life, that every detail of our life and Especially this day, the Lord's Day, is a day when the Spirit of God must work or we understand nothing. That the Spirit of God has has brought us here as a people. He's brought each one of us here, orchestrated the events of life. By the grace of God, uh, our week has gone so that here we are this day. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't, hey, it just worked out. It wasn't that this is how it always goes. Every moment of every day that we are alive, that we have the opportunity to worship together is a grace of God. You're sitting here today breathing out of the gracious hand of God so that God might shepherd us. And that won't happen unless the Spirit of God works on us. I think about that when, I, when I'm going through the week, I'm preparing and I'm studying and trying to figure out exactly what to say. And so I, I, I come up here and I, I pray, Lord, if your spirit doesn't work, then this is just an exercise in futility. It really is. It's just a waste of time. It's just a performance. It's just uh, the same talking head week after week giving some kind of, of supposed erudite lecture that really means nothing. And so the spirit has to work. And so you're here this morning by God's grace so that the spirit will work. So it will work on our hearts. And so here we are, back again in Revelation chapter 19. There, there's only 22 chapters in this book as, as we've divided it up. It, it was just one letter from the beginning to the end. No chapter titles, you realize that. No, no chapter numbers. That's not how John wrote it. John didn't write it and sit down and go, oh yeah, oh wait, here's chapter 19. He didn't do that. This is just one continuous letter through the vision that God gave him. And here we are, as we call it, so that we can kind of categorize things in our mind. Chapter 19, there's only 22 chapters in this revelation. And we've been studying it for some time. 
And now we're approaching the final events. And I pray really that God's opened your spiritual eyes through this study to the truths and the pictures that God has given us of what's to come in the future that maybe you didn't realize before. Maybe maybe you've read through it, but you didn't realize it was really going to take place that way. Or, or maybe in your own study, you, you may have not seen what we've uncovered over the last months. This is our, you may not have been counting, but this is our 61st hour of study. And you would think, as we've been studying this, you would think that because much of it, in fact, chapter 6 to up to chapter where we've been, up to the end of chapter 18, it's, it speaks about judgment. What's to come on the world in the future? The future history, if you will, of the world. You would think, because of all of that, that the main theme of this book is judgment. Many come to that and they go, I, I've read Revelation. There's just so much judgment and I don't want to read it anymore. And, and we've, so even in our study, you know, I go, here we go. More judgment, more judgment, more judgment. You'd think that's the theme of the book. We know, however, the main theme is not judgment. The main theme is the full revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We learned that months ago, back in chapter 1. And we've been seeing that theme of Jesus Christ unfold throughout the pages of our study. We have been studying all the while anticipation has been building because we know what's to come. We, we've read the last chapter. We, we, we do that with books. We pick up a book and we read the final end because we can't wait to read through the details to get to the final end. So we read the end and then we go back and read the book and see how it got there. We do that with the Revelation and, and sometimes rightly so. And so we've been anticipating the glorious return of Jesus Christ to the earth as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in our study, we followed the chronology of the tribulation event. And the final bold judgments have been poured out already. The destruction of the false religious system of the world has been destroyed. All of the false religions that, that have nothing to do with God and those that claim to know God but don't follow Jesus Christ, who don't say that Jesus Christ is God, and even those that say that Jesus Christ is God but misdefine and redefine and falsely follow things of the Scriptures that aren't of the Scriptures, all of those things are destroyed. The economic central city of the Antichrist is destroyed and the final brick as the as the final brick is falling to the ground and the smoke is rising to the skies all of heaven is rejoicing the world is weeping the world is lamenting and yet heaven is screaming praise the lord and they are singing because of his judgment They're singing because Jesus Christ has avenged, as verse 2 said of chapter 19, the blood of His bondservants on her. 
She is paying the price for her rejection of Jesus Christ and paying the price of lashing out against Jesus Christ through the death of those who professed Christ even during the tribulation. And Jesus Christ is avenging their blood on her. And all of heaven is worshiping God because He is the Almighty and He is, in fact, in control. God is in control. Every little detail, every little moment, every little bump in the road, every little pothole of our road of life, all of those things, all throughout history, all into the future, God is fully in control. And heaven is rejoicing at that reality. And in our text this morning, this song continues. But there's a very different reason. Follow along as I read for us verses 7 through 10. John writes this down. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit. Of prophecy. Back in chapter 16 and verse 17, we heard the voice of God from the throne say, It is done. It is done. The judgments of God were finished upon the earth. In the chronology of the tribulation event, as John was seeing it, in chapter 16 and verse 17, it is done. We saw a little more detail of how that final reality was taking place in the destruction of the, the Antichrist false religious system and the, the central city of Antichrist in chapter 17 and 18. But for all intents and purposes, chronology-wise, the tribulation ended in chapter 16. And now the same voice issues a command to all the saints of heaven and earth. Rejoice. A loud voice, a great multitude, chapter 19, verse 1 says. And since the authority of God on the throne has been fully vindicated in the destruction of the system of Antichrist, all saints are called to praise God. In fact, all the saints are commanded to never stop praising our God who has acted in this way. Paul said to the Philippian church, rejoice always. The same word, rejoice always. We are commanded here as 
saints of God. And here in the vision of John, John seeing the tribulation saints and all the saints of heaven of which we are part of since we were raptured away in the church. We are commanded here to sing and to never stop singing and praising God because he has acted in this way. And so the text even told us that coming from every part of society, all those bondservants who fear him, the small and the great, verse 5 of Revelation chapter 19, those who have been saved during the tribulation, those who having shown in their lives the reverential fear of God and faith in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of the most heinous persecution that may ever come their way, those who, uh, that, that faith in their life which kept them apart and away from the system of Antichrist that even cost them their life, they join with the saints of heaven and they sing hallelujah to our God. This is a great company of believers. This is like the sound of many waters. It says the the sound of mighty peals of thunder. I can't even imagine what that might be like. I've heard loud thunder. I've lived in a lot of places in this country, especially in the Midwest where the thunderstorms are massive and huge and loud. But I can't imagine what it would sound like to have voices of multitudes sound like that. We heard singing this weekend of the men and and some of the ladies said, I love it when the men sing. It sounds so great when the men sing. I've been in places where where the sports arenas are filled with people and seven to 8,000 voices are singing and how awesome that is. This is so much beyond that. This is a great company of believers. And they not only recognize the might that God has shown on earth, but they also grasp the next part in the divine program of God. The marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what they are rejoicing for. Notice in verse 7, notice the word for. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. Let us never... the, the The original language tenses of the words there, let's never stop rejoicing. Let us never stop being glad to God. Let us never stop raising the the voice of honor so that God is glorified continuously. Why? Because or for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. You see, the word for there in the context of this passage gives us the foundation upon which all of this praise is due. In fact, if you think about redemption at all and you think about the future redemption of the church and all of the saints, this is the high point of the great hallelujah chorus in heaven. This is it. With Babylon destroyed and the earthly kingdom about to be established. The moment has come for the greatest of earth's joys. A marriage and its feast of celebration. Now, we need to say some things as we begin our time here this morning in this passage. Because... 
if you spend any time reading uh, those who have studied these passages, there is confusion about uh, various aspects of this passage. And I don't want us to be confused. I don't want us to have confusion as to what's being talked about here. I want us to have some clarity as to the eschatological timeline and who is involved in all of this. So hopefully I can clear some of these confusions up. Because when we think through this passage, we need to have our Jewish mindset on. We need to be thinking as a Jew would think, but also we need to have some, some real thought going on in the, in the reference to clarity within our own Bible study practices. So first, let's think about our own Bible study practices. Clarity within our own Bible study practices. As you remember, in the past, as we have studied the Scriptures together, when, when you come to the Scriptures at large, you have to always remember that context rules everything, right? You've heard me say that in public. You've heard me say that in private. The elders say that. Bible study leaders say that. Teachers and classes say that. Context is everything. In other words, one of the worst ways to misinterpret the Bible is to take something out of context, to drag a passage from one place out of context and make it say what it does not say. It's one of the most dangerous things to do in any kind of Bible interpretation. But there's another thing that's very dangerous just like that, and that is uh, to take a passage... And take the true meaning too far in its meaning. So to take a passage and, and to, to rightly read it, to read it even within its context, but then take that meaning way too far beyond what is intended to it to mean. And many have done that with Revelation chapter 19. They've done this second one. They've, they've read the passage, but they've taken what it say and gone way beyond what John is seeing and what God would have us to understand. So you notice here in Revelation chapter 19 that there is the marriage of the Lamb. There is His bride, it says in verse 7. And confusion can come when we begin to, to answer the question as to who is this bride. We can't go by way of our own assumptions. We have to understand what the Word of God teaches. Some will begin to say and go far in saying that Israel here is the bride. Why? Why do they say that? Because the Old Testament speaks about Israel and their relationship with God, that God is described in various passages in the Old Testament as the bridegroom of Israel. He is the bridegroom of Israel, and rightly so, they say that. In fact, I want to show you a few of those passages. So turn back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. I just want to show you a couple of these so that now you, when people ask you or you talk about this, you, you have some, some apologetic for why you are saying what you're saying. Isaiah chapter 54 In verse 6, Isaiah is prophesying to the nation of Israel about 
the future, many, many things into the future, all kinds of things, and, and the, their disobedience to God in many ways. And in Isaiah chapter 54, notice verse 4, Fear not, for you will not be put to shame, neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Why? For your husband is your maker. Well, we, we certainly aren't out on a limb to say we know who the maker of all things is, right? God, in the beginning, God created. God created this. This is God. Your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, you see? And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Notice verse 6, For the Lord has called you like a wife, forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected. So you get this, this metaphor being spoken of, this marriage relationship metaphor God is using through the prophet Isaiah to describe his relationship with Israel. Now go over to chapter 62, Isaiah chapter 62. In verse 5, we see similar idea. Notice verse 4, it will no longer be said to you, forsaken. Nor to your land will it be any longer said desolate. You will be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and in him your land will be married. For as, your, for as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. So there's this idea again that God is using through the prophet Isaiah this whole marriage metaphor where God is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride. Now turn over to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. Again, Jeremiah prophesying to, prophesying to the nation of Israel. And in chapter 31, he talks about the whole new covenant. I'm sorry, it's Jeremiah 31 we want to be in. So just turn back Jeremiah 31, not 32. Verse 32 that we're going to go to. So Jeremiah 31, verse 32, there's, he, he just talks about this new covenant. Behold, verse 31, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a what? Husband to them. I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So God, again, using this, this picture, this intimate relationship, this husband-wife relationship to describe God and Israel. And so all of those places refer to God, the Father, as the bridegroom of Israel. And so many transfer that information over into Revelation chapter 19, and when it talks about this marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride of the Lamb, they transfer all of this into there and say, well, it must be Israel. And yet, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is referred to as the bridegroom. 
You can go through the Gospels, that infinitum. I don't, I don't want to even go through all the passages because there's so many where Jesus Christ is referred to as the bridegroom. We're going to go to two specific passages that I want to show you in reference to this. But, but there's so many that you can't even really uh, cover them all. But specifically in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul speaks to the church. The church in Ephesus and thereby the church at large, that means all of us. And he talks about this marriage relationship. Verse 22 of chapter 5. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. So in the same way you subject yourself to the Lord, subject yourself to your husbands. That's what he's saying to the wives. The husband is the head of the wife. Christ also the head of the church. He himself the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be Subject to their husbands. We've gone through that passage and spoken about the marriage relationship. But notice, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might, what? Sanctify her, that is, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? So that he might present to himself the church. In all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. And then Paul, in the next verse, transfers it back to, to our relationship between each other. He's, he's using the example Christ and the church, and he's using that as an example. He says, so husbands ought to also love their wives, even as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So there's this this. When you want to love your wife to the maximum, guys, love her the way you love you. That's what he's saying there. And then he says over in verse 32, this mystery is great. This, this marriage mystery. It's a, it's a great mystery. There's so many things that are there that, that are so profound for us. And Paul says, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the husband, the bridegroom of Israel. And the New Testament, Jesus Christ is referred to as the bridegroom of the church. So and then you have... Passages where Jesus is speaking in parables. All throughout the Gospels. And he's speaking in parables about the kingdom to come. And those get transported all the way into Revelation chapter 19. Now I want to I say something about those parables. Or at least a couple of them. As we go. So I, I told you we were going to go to the Gospels. Go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is, is getting close to the end of his ministry. We're still talking about this whole issue of Bible clarity, this clarity of interpretation and not dragging things from one place to another, even though we might understand something. We, we can't drag that in per se. Matthew chapter 22 in verses 1 through 14, Jesus is giving a parable concerning a marriage feast. Sounds familiar? Sounds like Revelation chapter 19. There's a marriage feast there. 
And it says in verse 1, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, He had just spoken to the Pharisees about a landowner, a king, a great king, who had planted a vineyard and, and went away and had these servants taking care of the vineyard, and, and they, they mistreated the servants who were, the, in, in the metaphor there, the prophets who had come. They mistreated them. Jesus, God sent more prophets. They mistreated them. Then he said, ah, they'll surely uh, deal well with my son. In Jesus, of course, that's Jesus Christ. God sends his son, and they kill his son. And, of course, the Pharisees that Jesus is talking to, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, are thinking, well, he's talking about us. And you go, well, how do you know that? Because it says that in verse 45 of chapter 21. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, that is the parable of the landowner, they understood that he was speaking about them. They're the ones who were called to take care of these things and yet who killed the son. And they sought to seize him. They feared the multitude because... They held Jesus up as a prophet. And so Jesus answers and speaks to them again in parables. Verse chapter 22. The kingdom of heaven. He wants to talk about the kingdom of heaven. What's it going to be like in the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. And again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted live livestock and and all the it's it's all been butchered and everything is ready come to the wedding feast they paid no attention to it and went on their way one to his farm one to his business the rest seized the slaves mistreated and even killed them the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed the murderers and set their city on fire and said to his slaves the wedding is ready But those who were invited were not worthy. So go to the main highways and and many as you find there invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and they gathered together all they found, both evil and good, till the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw them. He saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? He was speechless. The king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness, into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now notice verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now you notice this passage, this parable is about a wedding feast. It's not about the wedding itself. It doesn't say anything about a ceremony that has had. We don't get any details about any ceremony Uh, you don't hear any details about the bride. You don't even hear any details about the groom. All you have here is Jesus equating the kingdom of God to a marriage feast. The kingdom of God is like this. There's things here that that we can equate to the kingdom of God. So this is a story about a wedding, but not the wedding itself. It's a story about what comes after the wedding. There's this king who has this wedding, obviously. He prepares all this stuff for his son. He sends out slaves to call those who have been invited, but they're unwilling to come. So he sends out slaves for more, and they come. 
Now listen, a wedding feast was the highlight. Put on your Jewish hat for a minute. Wedding feast was the highlight of all Jewish social life. I mean, it was the pinnacle. It would have been the most elaborate celebration imaginable. And especially if it was the celebration of a king. You might live when there was one king in your lifetime. People didn't live when Jesus was there for hundreds of years. They died relatively quickly. So to have a king throw a feast for his son, this, this would have been something you would have never said, I'm not going to. So, so people are stunned when they hear that some said, no, nah, i got better things to do. i got business to tend to. i got farms to tend to. i I got other things I want to do that are more important than that. In the Jewish mind, when Jesus said those words, it would have been like, are you kidding me? No way. And what's important about this parable about the kingdom to come is that it was the greatest celebration that could ever come to people in their entire lifetime. Listen, you may have been to a lot of parties in your day. You may have been to a lot of sanctified parties after salvation, but there's nothing compared to the kingdom of God. This is the most elaborate celebration you can. So Jesus is drawing attention to that. And the king, for the king to throw a party for his son who was getting married was to throw the greatest celebration anyone would ever know. And for you to be an invited guest, I mean, you're talking upper echelon here. For you to be invited to the party, whoa. Wait a minute. You got to be kidding me. I got an invitation from the king? That would have been the most unimaginable privilege you could ever have. But when you read this story, when you read this parable, did you notice? Did you notice here in Matthew 22 that there's no mention made of the bride? Seems a bit strange in some ways. There's no words about any part of the wedding at all. In fact, In fact, the wedding ceremony or the bride or the groom here isn't the point. The point is that the kingdom of God is the greatest of all celebrations. And to be an invited guest is the height of privilege. And when Jesus is saying these things to the religious Jewish leaders... Just like they understood he was talking about them when they killed the son, they know he's talking about them here as being those who were initially invited and yet rejected the king. Rejected the invitation. And we understand the king here is God. We understand the son is Jesus Christ. God the Father is putting together the greatest celebration that could ever be done for his son. And that celebration is called the kingdom. The kingdom. Or as it's described in Revelation chapter 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Wedding feast of the Lamb is is terminology, Revelation terminology for the kingdom. And God is inviting people to come as His guests. Many reject. 
So, so from Matthew 22, there's no indication as to who the bride is. There's only an indication as to the feast and the privilege of being invited. So you, you can't drag Matthew 22 over to Revelation chapter 19 and come to some conclusion about who the bride is there. The most you can do is understand the kingdom to be this greatest celebration that God has ever done and the kingdom being the feast of the wedding. Now go to Revelation, I mean Matthew 25. Jesus, once again, getting closer to the signs of his return. He's teaching about that in Matthew 24 and 25. Talking about the perilous times that will come before that glorious return of Christ. And he says in Matthew 25, or let me in Matthew 24, verse 42, be on alert. You don't know when that day's coming. And then in Matthew 25, he, he continues with this idea and gives some parables. And I just want to highlight the first one. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to... Ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now you have to get your Jewish mind hat on here when it comes to a wedding. In the Jewish days, in the ancient days, weddings were prearranged. You had someone betrothed to another. Sometimes that was arranged a little later in life because family lines wanted the ties. They, they were tying families together. And, and you wanted to be tied to, to families that had a progeny that would go on. Why? Because name was everything. And so there was betrothals that would happen. And if a family had a daughter or was going to have a daughter and another one had a son, sometimes those families would get together and betroth those children together. It was, a, it was a binding legal contract. It was as if those kids were already married in the betrothal time. And then would come a time of preparation. And, and that young girl would be attended to by, by maidservants who would help her get ready for that great day. And here you have uh, that imagery taking place. There were these virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Why? Because once that day came, the bridegroom would come for the bride. He would leave his house, he would come to the bride, and take her back with him to the ceremony. Five of them here are foolish and five are prudent. Five of the attendants of the bride who go out to meet the bridegroom as he's coming. Five are foolish, five are prudent. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took oil with they took no oil with them. But the prudent took their flasks of oil along with their lamps. So you got five who go, they run out in haste, they don't take any extra oil to keep the lamps lit for lighting, but five do. And now while the bridegroom was delaying, you say, why was he delaying? Because, because the bridegroom is at the house of his father. His father is preparing this grand celebration that's going to take place. That takes time. I mean, in an agrarian society, you, you had sent out the invitations. There would be hundreds of guests that would come. And it was a celebration that would go on and on and on, sometimes for a week or even beyond a week. 
And so you had all of these guests you had to prepare for, food and, and, and lodging and all of these kinds of things. It was this grand event. And so uh, while the bridegroom is delaying because you don't know, uh, they get drowsy. They want to go to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout. And the bridegroom says, come out. It's time. Come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. The prudent answered saying, no, there won't be enough for us. Go instead to the dealers, buy some for yourselves. And while they're going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom comes. And those who are ready go with him to where? The wedding feast. What was the wedding feast? The kingdom. They go to the wedding feast and the door is shut. Later, the other virgins come saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. And he answers and says, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Sounds like Matthew chapter 7, doesn't it? Lord, Lord, didn't we do things in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all this stuff in your name? And Jesus said, I will say to you, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Here, I don't know you. And so verse 13 becomes the point of this passage. Be on alert then. Be prepared. Why? Because you don't know the day nor the hour. What's his point? You don't know the day or the hour when the kingdom is going to begin. So don't waste your time with all that other nonsense, all that other frivolous stuff. Prepare ahead of time. Be ready because you don't know when He's going to come. That's the point. So Jesus is using the marriage, the marriage ceremony, all that goes on from betrothal to the time of preparation to the time of the great feast, which in Jewish days they might call that the presentation, where the bridegroom presents his bride to everybody. He's using all of that in this metaphor, and the Jewish mind would have understood all of that. No one knew when the bridegroom would come. Takes a lot of time for the family to prepare for the celebration. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. The Father's house. Preparation being made. He's the bridegroom. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. And so these virgins are attending to the bride. And only some are ready. So this parable is not about who the bride is. This parable is about being prepared. It doesn't focus on the bride. It doesn't even focus on the bridegroom. Just that point. Be prepared. So we can't transport all of that and that illustration back to Revelation chapter 19 or it will simply confuse us to what's happening. So now with all of that in your mind, go back to Revelation chapter 19. Because this is the greatest rejoicing the earth has ever known. 
This is the greatest rejoicing that has been in the anticipation of the glories of heaven forever and ever and ever. And this is rejoicing over the marriage of the Lamb and the blessing upon those who have been invited to the supper of the Lamb. We know who the Lamb is. That's not all that difficult. That is Jesus Christ. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said he is the Lamb of God. We even know that there is a marriage of the Lamb. It says it here. Jesus Christ, being the Lamb, will symbolically marry his bride. So who is that? Who's the bride of Jesus Christ? Well, the only answer we can get from Scripture that tells us clearly who that is, Ephesians 5.25, the bride is the church. The church is the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Ever since from the day of Pentecost until that time when the church is taken away, that is the bride of Christ. All of those who are saved outside the church age, all of those who are saved outside of Pentecost until the rapture are invited guests to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The kingdom which includes the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom. That's the marriage feast. So when you get to Revelation chapter 21, as we'll get to in another several weeks, notice what it says so that you're not confused as you read through Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 All who were part of the new Jerusalem, that includes all who were saved. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, church age saints, tribulation saints, millennial kingdom saints. All of those are described in Revelation 21 under this this total scope of the bride of Christ as the new Jerusalem. Notice Revelation chapter 21 verse 9 and one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying come here I shall show you the bride the wife of the lamb you go great man I get to find this out in perfect detail he carries me away verse 10 in the spirit to such a great high mountain and showed me what the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God Having the holy, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. And you, you read through Revelation chapter 21 and, and you get this grand description of the new Jerusalem. And nowhere does it change that description. He's showing us a description of who? The bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb. I, I thought the bride of the Lamb was the church. The bride of the Lamb is the church. From the perspective of John and John or Revelation in chapter 19, the marriage supper or the, the marriage of the Lamb is to the church, and in the greatest scope, that that bride is all believers. Once you get to Revelation chapter 21, they're described as the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and new earth. And so no one who is a true believer, is left out. People say, well, why is the church put there? I don't know. 
All I know is God is using the church to instill in the hearts of the Jewish people a jealousy so that he can draw them back. And the tribulation is a process through which he will do that. And we, as the church, have a special place in the heart of God. And so in one sense, the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper begin at his second coming when we return with Christ. The church return, you notice, we'll see that next time in verse 11 through 21. When Christ returns, I saw heaven open and behold, verse 11 in chapter 19, a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war and his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head many diadems and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and on his, and his name is called the word of God and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean are following him on horses. His bride is clothed in bright and clean, fine linen, it says in verse 8. We're coming back with Christ. And so it begins at the second coming, but it doesn't close until the final defeat of Satan in the millennial kingdom, the final judgment seat before God and a new heaven and a new earth is ushered in. That's the the. Marriage feast time. You say, that's a long time. I mean, the millennial kingdom is a thousand years. Yeah, but remember, with God, a thousand years is is one day. Short, really. So think about this. So think about this with me. The blood of the Lamb points us back to Calvary. Think about the blood of the Lamb. You think about the cross. You think about Calvary. You think about the death of Jesus Christ. The wrath of the Lamb, as we have been seeing it, points us to the heavenly throne of God. And the wrath of the Lamb being carried out upon those who have rejected Him. And now, here, in Revelation chapter 19, we have the marriage of the Lamb. And that points us to that day in the future when we will have eternal gladness and joy. What a privilege. What an awesome privilege. And so when you read Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 to 10, the wife of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19 is the church. Every other saint, Old Testament saint, tribulation saint, millennial kingdom saint, they will be at the feast. And in the end, we are all described as the bride of the Lamb in the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21. But here, here John is seeing the church. John is seeing that for which he is a part of. Remember, John is a saint who believed in Jesus prior to his resurrection, but is around after Pentecost. John is a believer, part of the church. We think the church is just a few thousand years old. Listen, it is, but John's a part. John's a part of the church. And you say, well, that's kind of confusing. Well, let me just show you something back in John chapter 3. This is very interesting. You say, well, I'm not sure I I, I can go there as Israel being not the bride of Christ. John chapter 3, Jesus is about to give us, start his ministry. And I'm sorry we're going long, but I got to say all this. John chapter 3, John the Baptist is on the scene. 
And they're asking John who he is. Chapter 3, verse 27, and John answered, said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. This is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, John the Baptist. You yourselves bear me witness and I, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Okay, John says, I'm not the bride. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John says, I'm a Jew. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. I'm a friend of Christ. I'm a believer in Christ. I rejoice that Christ's voice is here. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase I must decrease. Listen, John the Baptist is not part of the church age. John the Baptist was killed before Christ. He's an Old Testament saint. And he says, I am a friend of the bridegroom. So Israel can't be the bride in Revelation chapter 19. John is representing Israel. So here in Revelation chapter 19, John's seeing the church. He's seeing the coming celebration of the kingdom. That kingdom is described here in verse 9 as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says in verse 7 that the bride is ready. His bride has made herself ready. The, The complete and full union of the betrothed church is now ready. That's what John's saying. We were betrothed to Christ in eternity past, folks. The father decided that he would have a bride for his son. And we are that bride. We were betrothed in eternity past. We've been presented to Christ at the rapture. Christ came for us and we were presented to him in the glories of heaven before the Bema seat of Christ where Christ passes out the rewards for all the good things that we have done that have been to the glory of God. Everything else is wasted that we heard about, men, this weekend. We want to look to those things and make sure today we're living in light of that. We have been presented to Christ. And now comes the great wedding celebration in the glories of heaven. And his bride has made herself ready. All the time of preparation for his bride has been done. Verse 8 says how she made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. You know what that just simply means? She walked in obedience. She walked in obedience. You see why we need the Spirit? It's been given to us by God to clothe ourselves in fine linen. How? Through the Spirit. The only way we can walk in obedience, the only way we can do what God asks, the only way we can honor Him is if the Spirit is working in us. Paul said to the Philippian believers in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't mean work for your salvation. He says, listen, live in obedience according to the things of the Spirit. Why? For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's what Paul was saying. That's what John is saying here. It's been given to the church. 
to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. You say, how do you know that? Because that's what the verse says. Look at the end of verse 8. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It's our obedience to God. So think about this. The Bible tells us that it is God's will that we be sanctified. We know that. It says it clearly, 1 Thessalonians. This is God's will, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That you live holy lives. Sanctified means holy. God has willed it so that we be made holy so that He might give to His Son a a chaste bride, a, a virgin bride, an undefiled bride, a pure and glorified people, sanctified, pured, ultimately given to His Son, and Christ will present us before all of the believers in history and God the Father as His bride. All the other saints are there looking upon it as guests of the feast. Our wedding garments would never be pure and bright without God giving it and granting it and giving us the Holy Spirit. We would never be pure. We'd never be bright. We'd never be blameless. All of it's guaranteed by the Father. So our lives are reviewed before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. And the light of the throne of Christ shines so brightly upon those deeds. Every act is uncovered. Every moment is brought out. The true character of all of that is brought out to see if it was truly for God's glory. Everything's known. When the light of the throne's work is done, when we have been scrutinized, the bride of the church will be fittingly ready for the marriage ceremony. You notice here the marriage ceremony isn't even mentioned. It's such a small thing. The vows given are just small detail. The rest is the hoopla that goes with it. The grand celebration of it all. And all of heaven and all of earth is rejoicing at this moment. And John is so absorbed in this moment that he has to be commanded to write. Verse 9, and when he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You know who the bride is. You know who the bridegroom is. The invited guests are all those who are not part of the church age. Redeemed Israel. Old Testament saints are going to be part of that. Everybody you read about in in Hebrews chapter 11. The great hall of faith. The prophets. The faithful, all the believers, all the redeemed by grace through faith over the history of the world. Amazing. They're the invited guests. John is so overwhelmed at this. Notice verse 10. He's so overwhelmed at this, he, he just has to worship. And he, he wrongly falls at the feet of the one giving him the message, the, the voice, the angelic uh, there's this one voice and he worships and he says don't do that don't worship me I'm just a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus you worship God see it's all pointed back to God I'm just part of you I'm just a servant like you I'm just a do loss I'm just a, a slave of God 
Why? Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the true word. The testimony of Jesus is the content of all this. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. You see, it's all about the bridegroom. Don't you find that interesting? In weddings today, who's it all about? About the bride. The wedding of us to Christ, it's all about Christ, not about us. It's about the bridegroom. And you know what? In ancient days, it was always about the bridegroom. He would present his beloved bride to the people. It was his day. Oh, how we have changed that. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Let me ask us this question this morning. Are you anxiously anticipating this day? Is that the... Is that the blood pumping through your spiritual heart? Can we say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith, Uh, in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also those who loved His appearing. Can we say that? I wonder wonder, do we love His appearing? Is that our full affection? Is that where our affections lie? Or are our affections at all the temporary things this world has? Are we excited, rejoicing for the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb? Or are we just simply indifferent to it? Are we like those back in Matthew chapter 20 who go, you know, i got better things to do. This is the consummation of God's plan. This is what we live for. This is what true believers die for. The day that we wait for is when we're joined together with our heavenly bridegroom. I pray that the Spirit impresses that upon our heart. Let's bow together. Father, these have been so amazing to us. Riveting truths for my very soul. Convicting truths that show me the reality of so frivolous uh, desires and focuses. Things of this temporary earth that mean nothing. What a great day it will be when we are joined with you for all eternity and you present your church pure, undefiled, and all of the other saints that you have ever saved. Look upon that and celebrate in wonder so that the day comes when we're all together, joined as one, singing as one voice to our great Savior. Father, we look for that day. Help us to not be anxious as we read this morning. Help us not to think of other things more than you. Help us to always be rejoicing at what is to come. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.